Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Justin Guess, author of Majority Minority. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Well, thanks so much for having me, Deidre. You know, there's so many reasons, uh, so many factors, I think, that brought me to this subject matter. Um, I think you know, most personally, uh, I, I was born and raised in urban Los Angeles. I went to Los Angeles public schools. And in many ways, um, you know, my, my existence was in a majority minority atmosphere, not only the city of Los Angeles, but also um, my schools. Uh, they were all already majority minority um, uh, in nature uh, at, at that early uh, period in American history. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, also on a personal note, my father was a refugee. And um, so much of my interest in immigration, I think, uh, has been spurred by his own story uh, of struggle, of dreams, uh, and of mobility. And so I've always been very interested in immigration and demographic change as subject matters. Um, you know, more professionally, my work heretofore has always been about uh, those subject matters, immigration policy, demographic change, backlash, and nativism. Um, these are the subjects um, that really uh, you know, consume uh, my mind and, and, and my first five books before this one. So um, it's, it's a subject matter that's very dear to me uh, on a professional note, but also personally. Now, tell the audience about the significance of March 3rd, 2015. Sure. March 3rd, 2015, the United States Census Bureau released a pretty humdrum report, uh, a report that was like almost any other that it does, uh, with a variety of population projections. But in this report, um, really buried um, on the first page, but, but nevertheless buried, uh, was a note about how the United States would become a majority minority country, one in which the native or original um, uh, ethnic or racial group uh, loses its numerical advantage. In this case, we're talking about white people, of course, non-Hispanic white people lose their numerical advantage to one or more minority groups by 2044. And on that date, and after the Census Bureau report came out, uh, a string of news articles appeared across the press and across the political spectrum, um, some in, with great anticipation uh, for this momentous uh, uh, demographic milestone, and others, you know, it, terribly discomforted, uh, and, and in, in some cases even anxious uh, about the loss of uh, a white majority in the United States uh, for purportedly the first time in its history, uh, as you and I will probably talk a little bit more about soon. Um, you know, it really does depend on what we mean by whiteness, if we're going to say that this was the first time in history. Um, but on that date, in many ways, it was the date in which, uh, you know, the sort of uh, deadline, if you will, the milestone for this sort of social upheaval was set, um, you know, when this, the shadow of America's demographic change was cast over its politics. Now, tell the audience the meaning of majority minority. That's a term that's been out here for some time. Sure, sure. So it, it really is in reference to that demographic milestone I mentioned. So it is where an, a, an original or a native ethnic or religious group 
loses its numerical advantage. It ceases to be greater than 50% of a country's population because one or more ethnic or religious minorities uh, has grown enough uh, to to displace uh, the original group. And so in the United States, what it means is uh, when white people no longer make up greater than half the country's population. Um, but in other countries, it could relate to other you know ethnic groups or religious groups that were previously the majority. And, you know, for so many people, this milestone, Deidre, uh, is, you know, thought of as a unique American exception, um, you know, un- unlike anything that's happened across world history. Uh, but in fact, as I, you know, detail in the book uh, quite extensively, uh, this is not a-, a unique milestone, but it is rare. Um, that-, that means there are actual other examples uh, of majority minority societies that we can actually look to to better understand our own. Now, you talked about the cultural wars. Tell the audience, what did you find, you know, in general about the cultural wars? Sure. So, you know, so much of U.S. politics these days and really over the last 20 to 30 years um, is about culture. There are debates over um, social issues that are driving wedges across the country uh, on the basis of kind of hardwired beliefs normative beliefs about uh, lifestyles and about human behavior. So they relate to homosexuality, to religion, uh, to to um, the use of, of, of guns and the right to bear arms. Um, they relate to how children are educated in school. Uh, they relate to immigration and, and refugees. Um, they relate to identity politics. And um, this is, you know, relatively new for the United States uh, over the last 30 years. You know, heretofore, Uh, Democrats and Republicans, the country's primary political parties, uh, were separated in many ways on on a sort of economic ideology, Uh, one more Keynesian and socialist, um, the other more um, neoliberal and capitalist. Um, But over the course of the 1980s and 90s, the Democratic Party shifted to a more centrist view on economics. And what really defined the two parties' um, differences uh, became to shift over to the cultural and social sphere. And both parties recognized that they were able to um, polarize society in a, in a electorally helpful way um, by focusing on these social issues. Uh, they were able to make identity uh, or partisanship uh, a, a constituent part of their identity, of people's identities, which made people more loyal to their parties and more mobilized to vote. The problem is it also shred the social fabric of the country and made major political issues over national identity dividing the United States in ways that it hadn't seen since the Civil War. Now, there are different types of assimilation with immigrants, and you talked about how some immigrants are more accepted uh, culturally on the cultural assimilation. Tell us about that. Well, you know, over the course of American history, um, you know, immigrants have been viewed um, initially certainly as foreign and and as unwelcome. Um, That's a pretty consistent theme throughout American history, despite, you know, the way we tried to kind of gloss over it by focusing on our heritage as a nation of immigrants. That's kind of, um, you know, looking back in hindsight. But when immigrants first arrive, there's often a lot of discomfort about their arrival. and inevitably, what ended up happening as the country diversified over the course of the uh, 19th century, um, some groups were viewed as more similar than others. And, you know, there were lines being drawn in those days about what constituted 
uh, being an American, what constituted whiteness, um, and what constituted a group that was, you know, too different to actually be assimilate, assimilated. And, you know, these are debates uh, that run through the threads of American history uh, pretty much since the arrival of the Irish during the Great Famine uh, in 1845 to 1854. Um, after the Irish, who, of course, were predominantly Catholic in those days uh, and for those arrivals, um, came Germans, came Italians, came Jews, Greeks, Slavs, uh, and later also uh, what were called then uh, Asiatics, uh, people who were from East Asia, so primarily uh, Japan and, and China, um, all of whom uh, were greeted with a, a certain amount of suspicion, uh, whether because you know they might be papists, you know, focusing uh, their loyalties on the Vatican, or 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 Jews, or people of foreign races. Um, these were you know all groups who were initially rather unwelcome, um, but over time, uh, what ended up happening was that the idea of whiteness broadened to incorporate a lot of the white ethnic groups um, that were previously out, outcast. Um, and so whiteness began to incorporate people who were of Irish uh, heritage or Italian heritage or eventually Greek or Jewish or, or, or Slavic heritage. Um, and that changed America's ideas about what it meant to be white from something that was very Anglo or, or Northern European Protestant um, to something that was broader. And in many ways, what that did was not just assimilate certain groups of people of who are immigrant origin, um, it also um, changed the idea of what it meant to be an American. Now, you looked at six different locations that are just fascinating. Tell us about each of those locations and what you found about majority-minority. Well, there's so much to say. You know, I... I, I um, I know we, you and I only have a little bit of time during this interview, so I can't tell you absolutely everything, but I can certainly go through each of the cases very briefly uh, just to introduce our listeners to them. And then certainly the book is uh, full of you know really rich detail about each place. So I look at those six countries uh, or six societies rather, and um, there are three different types of places among the six. So I, and they're all island nations, by the way. These are all island nations with fragile demographies that were affected by you know, changes in fertility rates and immigration trends to produce majority minority milestones. So the first two I'll mention are Singapore, the uh, Southeast Asian city state, uh, and Bahrain, the uh, island off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, Singapore and Bahrain are um, characterized by what I refer to as suppression. Uh, minority groups are effectively suppressed by state policy, by the government's policies, uh, to secure the predominance of one ethnic or, or religious group over others. And in Singapore, um, the predominant group are the Chinese. Uh, in a city-state that was once part of Malaysia, so the minority group are Malays and also uh, a smaller number of, of people of Indian origin, mostly um, Tamil origin. Um, in the case of Bahrain, the predominant group is actually kind of unclear. Uh, it's, it's actually a majority-minority state twice over. First, um, the nationals are outnumbered by immigrants. 57% of the country are of immigrant background uh, and foreign, foreign birth. Um, but beyond that, if you just focus on the citizens, it's actually not clear whether the Shia sect is actually larger than the Sunni sect. But the Sunnis are um, those who are most closely affiliated with the royal family, who has been altering laws and naturalization um, in order to um, weigh 
um, uh, the Sunni population more heavily uh, to actually artificially inflate the size of the Sunni population there. Um, beyond those first two, there are a second uh, group of cases in Mauritius and in Trinidad and Tobago. So Mauritius is an island uh, nation off the coast of Madagascar uh, in the Western Indian Ocean. Um, and it was the site of uh, initially a sugar uh, colony, a sugar economy run by the Dutch, then the French, then the British, uh, with um, you know powered by slavery, uh, powered by slave labor um, for centuries um, until slavery was abolished. Uh, and suddenly um, the British introduced the idea of indentured servitude, which brought Indians into the island uh, who came to actually predominate. The, the, the country. Uh, so it shifted from an Afro majority to an Indo majority, uh, and, and Indians continue to run the country today. Um, the, in the case of Trinidad and Tobago is similar uh, in that it was, a, again, a slave-based, plantation-based sugar colony uh, for the British for, for centuries um, before indentured servitude uh, arose. And again, Indians entered, but not to the same uh, distribution as was, was taking place in Mauritius. And so you had a more equal um, distribution of, of people of Indian and African origin in, in Trinidad and Tobago. In any case, um, both countries are consumed with ethnic tension. And in many ways, Trinidad and Tobago is paralyzed you know, politically by gridlock and stalemates associated um, with this uh, ethnic tension and conflict. Um, uh, that has largely been political conflict, uh, thankfully not violent conflict. Um, and then the final two cases are Hawaii and New York. And, you know, many of your viewers will think that, you know, uh, New York, of course, is, is a U.S. state, and so it's not its own sovereign country. Um, but actually, New York, um, even if it wasn't a sovereign country, it actually had um, the sort of simulation of sovereign control over immigration, uh, over, uh, until 1882, when U.S. immigration laws were federalized, and so immigra- uh, immigration was both run from an admission standpoint, but also from a deportation standpoint by the state of New York. Uh, and there, I focus really on the period when the Irish arrived and thereafter. Um, in the case of Hawaii, which is also now a U.S. state, they actually were a sovereign country. So that was the Hawaiian Kingdom up until it was forcibly annexed by the United States in 1893. And at that point, it was already a majority minority state. The monarchy had admitted large numbers of mostly East Asians from the Philippines, um, Japan, and China uh, to man the sugar and pineapple plantations and the whaling industry there, uh, fueling what was then a really booming economy. So those two cases, New York and Hawaii, were not characterized by suppression or uh, you know terrible ethnic tension, but rather a sort of reconstitution, a redefinition of what the nation is, of who we are. And they offer, I think, um, like the others, interesting lessons uh, for us to anticipate here in the United States. Now, let's switch forces and look at this fictional character, John Wagner. Okay, tell, sure. Tell the audience about that and what was so interesting. Sure. So John Wagner doesn't exist. Uh, as you said, he's he's fictitious. Um, but uh, in the minds of many of our survey respondents, um, my, my, my co-author Tyler Rennie, um, who didn't co-author the book but helped co-author this, this uh, study inside the book, um, what we did is we actually – 
told um, a, a, a large number, a, a survey sample of Americans, uh, particularly conservatives, um, that John Wagner was the chairman of the Republican Party. Uh, and of course, Wagner's not the chairman of the Republican Party. Not only is he not the chairman, he doesn't exist. But the chair, the chairman is actually the chairwoman, and it's Ron Romney McDaniel. And um, but it, for the purposes of the study, it didn't matter. What we were interested in looking at was what was the effect of being told something that was contrary to your views by someone who you nevertheless co-identify with and trust and like, and so. Wagner um, co-identified with many white conservatives because he was sold to our respondents as a Republican. We said, um, you know, meet this guy, John Wagner, who is a Republican and a conservative and a white male, and um, much like many of our respondents, and listen to this message. And in the message, Wagner, um, who is impersonated by a voice actor, um, tells a story uh, with a lot of John McCain-like language about how we need a moderate immigration policy that facilitates entry and that facilitates citizenship for people that gives them an equal shot at the American dream. And he uses and leverages his co-identity with many white conservatives um, to persuade. And we wanted to test what was the effect of introducing this character, John Wagner, to people um, and what the effect was on their immigration views when someone who they view as a a, a Republican elite and leader um, moderating their views. And to our surprise, um, John Wagner had a had a, a statistically significant um, uh, effect on Republican views towards immigration, which you know since Donald Trump's run for office in 2015 and 2016 have grown very very restrictive. John Wagner urging people to reconsider their views, um, even just in a 30 second statement, was sufficient to nudge those views more um, mod- marginally, but more in a liberal direction. And so what we learn from this fictitious character, John Wagner, is that if you want to convince conservatives who are discomforted by demographic change and anxious about immigration, the best way to actually reach them is by working through people who they trust and people who they like. And what Wagner shows us is that it doesn't have to necessarily be a celebrity. It can actually be someone no one's heard of so long as they leverage that co-identity as a white conservative Republican. Um, to actually persuade. Now, another nugget about the future uh, consists of the borderline whites. You talked about the election results along the Texas Rio Grande Valley. Tell us about that. Sure, happy to. So, you know, this really goes back to, you know, what we were just chatting about, the idea that whiteness is something that's subjective, that can change over time. And certainly we saw whiteness, you know, expand or absorb uh, people who were once deemed too different. Uh, it, it has absorbed people who were of Greek origins, of Italian origins, um, who were previously excluded from many institutions and, and, and social clubs and jobs and housing in the United States, um, you know, over the course of the 20th century. Well, if it, whiteness has expanded once, it could expand again. And what we're starting to see, I think, in the United States is a, the beginning of the expansion of whiteness to include Latinos who are passably white or self-identify as white or may present as white um, uh, you know, beyond their Hispanic heritage. So on census forms, Americans are asked, um, what is your ethnicity? And it's, there's only two choices, Hispanic or non-Hispanic. It's very reductionist. 
Um, of course, Latinos, you know, predominantly select Hispanic. But then there's a secondary question that asks, what is your race? And there, Latino is not actually a choice. So the choice is white, black, um, Asian, or Pacific Islander, uh, or Native American. And 60% of American Latinos um, actually select white um, in many ways because that is the most logical choice for them. They they don't self-identify as any of the other groups. And so it is very likely, I think, that many of those Hispanic white people um, are beginning to or will eventually start to self-identify as white, uh, particularly if they are of European heritage and may actually present as white because of their phenotypical appearance. Um, the other factor about these white adjacent groups, these borderline white people, as, as, as you know, we might call them, um, is that we have a lot of uh, biracial and mixed race people in the United States now. It's growing, uh, and it has grown. The number has grown threefold uh, in just the last ten years, according to U.S. Census Bureau data. And so, it is conceivable that many of these mixed race individuals will also come to see themselves as white in the future. Which you know, with the Latinos that we just spoke about, could postpone the uh, majority minority wild milestone um, if whiteness can, you know, expands even further. Um, and in fact, actually 80% of people of mixed backgrounds are at least, you know, some share white. And so this is not a sort of inconceivable eventuality where, you know, demographic change is not so much necessarily driven um, or at least not only driven by fertility rates and immigration, but it's actually driven or con- or informed by people's choices of how they self-identify. Another nugget in the book was about the intermarriage and the number one form of intermarriage. Could you briefly tell us about that? Yeah, the most common form of intermarriage is with um, white people. So 80% of all mixed marriages uh, involve a white partner. And, uh, and that's why, you know, I, I, it is very likely uh, that the majority minority milestone uh, is going to be somehow affected um, by these, you know, quote unquote, white adjacent or borderline groups. Um, and, and just to be really clear about this, the effect of broadening whiteness, um, you know, some people might view this as a sort of um, a testament to the absorbency of whiteness and the absorbency of America that people can assimilate into whiteness despite different backgrounds. The problem, of course, though, is that when whiteness expands, it does so at the expense of groups who cannot be white adjacent, who are too different to be assimilated into whiteness, or who don't want to be. And that means you're talking mostly about uh, indigenous origin uh, Latinos, African-Americans and also Asians um, who are unlikely to identify as white. And so broadening whiteness means that you are probably also perpetuating the, the, the subjugation of minorities in the United States. Um, what we really want to see happen is not the broadening of what it means to be white, but really what it means to be American. Now, another thing you brought up in the book was um, what does this no zero sum game look like when people identify with a political party and their racial identification? Yeah, one of the things I think that is most concerning about political trends in the United States over the last 20 years has been the the growing racialization of our political parties. So it wasn't that long ago that uh, Asian Americans, you know, 
predominantly supported the Republican Party. Uh, they supported George H.W. Bush in the 1992 election. More recently, Muslim Americans sided with George W. Bush in the 2000 election before, of course, the September 11th attacks changed Muslim politics forever. Um, in 2004, George W. Bush actually s- nearly split the Latino vote with Democrats. He gained 44% uh, of, of Latino voters in 2004. And so, you know, it had it, for a long time, you know, the Democratic Party was not necessarily um, the exclusive choice of minority groups. Um, but today, that is what we see. Almost, you know, effectively all minority groups uh, predominantly support the Democrats. And the Republican Party is about 83, 85% white. Um, and so that is creating uh, a, a racialization of our politics where the cleavages that uh, ideologically separate the parties are aligning increasingly with identity-based cleavages, which of course are cleavages that people can't control, right? You can't control what your religion is or, or how you look uh, racially or phenotypically. And that's a danger for democracy because people are increasingly finding uh, or, or perceiving uh, opposing parties as an existential threat, which makes them you know, less likely uh, to want to lose, um, but also more likely to break the rules in order to win. Um, and so that spells trouble for democracies where you have to accept the fact that you may lose some elections. And, uh, and that just becomes increasingly inconceivable for many Americans right now and, 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 and leading to a lot of the political conflict we've seen. You end the book with a chapter entitled Reimagine Communities. Tell us about the importance of leadership in communities. Yeah, you know, one of the things I think that is a key takeaway from the book is that we cannot just sit around and wait for prejudice to go away. It's certainly, you know, the eradication of racism and and xenophobia uh, are noble pursuits. You know, these are scourges uh, in any society. But if we are waiting around for the eradication of racism and prejudice and xenophobia um, before we actually take action to develop a sense of national unity uh, and to rethink who we are, it's going to be too late. Uh, We're going to be waiting a very long time. Uh, Across all the six cases that I study, even the ones that are the most harmonious still have an element of prejudice and racism and xenophobia present. And so, you know, really in many ways, prejudice and xenophobia that's just the sort of turf upon which progress has to be made. And how progress is made in the course of my research, I find, uh, has a lot to do with leadership and governance. In many ways, majority-minority milestones are managed. And how they are managed makes a really big difference. So, you know, I, I end the book with a, a call to action, effectively, um, that you know draws some alarm to these political trends that we're seeing, but also how poorly prepared the United States and other diversifying nations are um, for the dem- the demographic eventualities that their countries are facing. Um, and really, if 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 majority minority milestones are governed, then it is incumbent upon leaders, not just necessarily of government, but of businesses and civil society, leaders of churches and of even of families. Um, to ask themselves what they can do to try to bridge these divides, what they can do to bring people together, what they can do to try to reduce the barriers that separate uh, their fellow Americans and instead of reinforcing them and thickening their divides. Uh, and that call to action, I think, is is 
you know, is going to be pivotal if the United States is going to overcome what I think is the greatest social challenge of our times. Well, we've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you'll be working on? Oh, that's kind of you to ask. Um, I am right now preparing a, uh, a new database of immigrant rights across a variety of different countries, 45 different countries. Um, but the next book project uh, that I'm working on right now uh, relates to what is it, the effect is of people's emigration from their countries of origin on democracy in those countries of origin. And, uh, you know, I would say stay tuned for that uh, in, a, in a couple of years. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's my pleasure. And uh, and if your listeners want more contact the content, they're very welcome to check things out on my website, which is just justinguest.com, justinguest.com, or they're welcome to follow me on Twitter as well at underscore justinguest.